This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. This episode of the podcast is going to be completely uncontroversial. I plan on only discussing subjects that everyone can agree on and that could never, ever be thought of as anything but warm and fuzzy. Okay, I'm completely lying. Ever since I started this podcast two and a half years ago, people have been asking me to take on a subject that I have always kind of thought of as a bit of a third rail, and that is the keto diet. For the longest time, I resisted doing any segments on this because I recognized the cult-like devotion that many who, ad- who adhere to keto have for both this diet and the lifestyle that comes with adhering to it. However, I've been worn down to the point where I finally felt like it's time to put on my big girl slacks and do what needs to be done. And to prepare you for this, I want to open the program with something maybe a little less controversial and inflammatory. Okay, no, that's also not true. This is likely something that even less people will agree upon, and that is the recent furor that has been circulating on social media related to the executive order from the Biden administration earlier this year moving to allow the inclusion of trans kids in youth participation sports and under the gender that they identify with. Now, unsurprisingly, this has led to people like completely losing their minds and behaving in ways that can charitably be described as unbecoming. Many have taken to social media, crowing loudly about how this portends the death of women's sport, among other doomsday predictions. In most cases, these statements are being made by cis men, the likes of Brett Sutton, who himself is somewhat of an odd choice to have anything to say about protecting women in general, but he felt the need to speak forcefully in a way that makes it seem as though his opinion is important and matters more than anyone else he chooses to exclude from a sport that I personally have always felt should be as inclusive as possible. Look, as a man, I recognize that this conversation is less about me and that perhaps I shouldn't be the one opining on it. I've spoken with many women who have legitimate concerns about what these kinds of changes mean, and while I may disagree with them, I kind of feel like it really isn't up to me to convince them one way or the other because at the end of the day, this impacts me much less than it does them. So instead of listening to me on this, I wonder if you'd listen to a woman who I very much respect and who I think has some really excellent insights on the subject. And that person is my wonderful TriDoc podcast intern, Maddie Pesh. Hello, everyone. I'm Maddie Pesh, a professional triathlete from the USA and a research intern with the TriDoc podcast. I want to talk a little bit about transgender inclusion in sports and specifically within the triathlon world. This is a topic that has surfaced in mainstream media in just the past few years, even though trans athletes have been competing in sports for decades. The recent article by Brett Sutton on the topic was the latest example of a cis man speaking on the subject as if women's sports is about to collapse. 
He painted trans women as the threat, calling for them to be excluded from women's triathlon. I'm not here to say that I have all the answers, and I recognize that this is a topic fraught with emotion and fear. But I do believe Sutton's language is harmful, and it goes against what I love about triathlon. I think we can work towards solutions that are inclusive, kind, and that we can be a community that opens its arms to people from a place of compassion, not one that excludes others from a place of fear. I am an ally to the transgender community, and I believe that trans folks should be able to compete in the sport category that fits their gender identity. Trans women are women, and they belong in the women's category at all levels. I acknowledge the fear that a lot of women have expressed about the threat that they perceive this is to women's sport in general. Many cite the performance of track cyclist Rachel McKinnon as evidence that the inclusion of trans women in women's sports can only end badly. But the reality is that while McKinnon had some high profile successes, her losses were never reported and trans women in general continue to represent a tiny percentage of women who would present to a race, and in doing so would have to overcome innumerable obstacles to get there in the first place. Transgender inclusion is not a threat to women's sports. Trans folks want to be the best athlete they can be, and they want to be a part of the community in the sport they love. As a professional athlete, I welcome trans women to compete with me in the women's category. People like to point out each and every physical difference that could possibly exist between a trans woman and a cis woman, but these criticisms ignore the vast spectrum of differences that already exist amongst all women and frankly amongst men as well. I am not threatened by the physical differences between cis and trans women in sport because I have competed against women of all shapes and sizes for my entire athletic career. In the sport of triathlon, There are already so many advantages and disadvantages that an athlete can have that do not have anything to do with body composition at all. For example, in every race I line up to, athletes are racing on different bikes that have different mechanical efficiencies. Those efficiencies are known to help some gain an advantage over other athletes. There is no race where every athlete is equal in terms of equipment, body composition, or the resources they had to prepare for that day. Trans women also have to overcome additional barriers to make it to the elite level that most cisgender women do not. If people think it is easy for trans women to make it to the professional level, they are discrediting the extreme competitiveness of professional women's sports overall. It isn't easy for anyone to become a professional female athlete. Trans women who do make it to the professional level in sports have achieved tremendous athletic accomplishments to get there, and on top of that, they have dealt with many additional challenges that cis women do not face. Many trans women have to experience and overcome discrimination against their gender identity throughout their athletic careers, and this doesn't even begin to acknowledge the discrimination that trans women face in other areas of their lives outside of sport. Trans athletes need to go through hormone therapy to transition according to elite athlete hormone guidelines. I admire trans women for the bravery that they have to live in the world as their authentic selves and to overcome these additional barriers to compete at the professional level. We should honor that bravery. These stories enrich our sport. 
So as a professional athlete, if a trans woman beats me in a race or wins a world championship, I applaud her because of the tremendous hard work she gave to get there. There's always room for more women in our sport to achieve, including trans women. The achievements of trans women in triathlon take away nothing from the accomplishments of all other women in the sport. It only adds to the wonderful list of accomplishments of women in triathlon. I think many misconceptions about trans people and discrimination towards trans athletes can be overcome through education and getting to know trans people personally. In the past, I have held some negative misconceptions that hurt and exclude trans, excluded trans athletes, but I held these negative misconceptions because I did not understand what it meant to be trans. Like in so many aspects of life, we learn through understanding and we understand by placing ourselves in the shoes of those who we fear or do not understand. I learned about the experiences of trans athletes by following trans athletes on social media and by attending LGBTQ sports events in my city of Madison, Wisconsin. There are transgender athletes who are competing in our sports of swimming, cycling, and running and triathlon. As a cisgender person, Getting to know trans athletes, both in real life and virtually, was what helped me realize how important trans inclusion is and overcome the negative misconceptions I held about trans athletes. It helped me understand and fully believe why trans women belong in women's sports. I still have a lot to learn, and I'm working to be a better ally to the trans community every day. Each transgender athlete has a different path and story. It may be helpful to consider each athlete's participation in sports on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on the individual, but with each athlete, we should prioritize inclusion and acceptance. If we exclude trans athletes, we are contributing to the ostracism and discrimination that they already face in our society. I hope that listening to this message will help you also understand why we need to advocate Kate, for including trans athletes. Transgender people face so much fear and hostility in their lives already, and the sporting arena should be a place of refuge. Including trans athletes makes the world of sports a better and more welcoming place for everyone to achieve their dreams. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Maddie, for sharing your thoughts. Well, what do you think? Do you have strong feelings about this subject? I'd like to hear from you, and I'd like to be able to share it with my listeners. Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. And if you'd prefer that I withhold your name, then just say so, and I'll be glad to do that. On the show today, as promised in the lead, all things keto. If you've spent any time on social media, you know that the keto diet is unparalleled in its ability to help you lose weight, perform at a higher level, and even live longer. Adherence to the keto diet live by one rule and only one rule. That first and only rule of the keto diet is basically to never stop talking about the keto diet. Well, this episode is not for any of those people. I'm sorry to say that despite what you may have heard, the keto diet is actually pretty much a load of tripe. Yep, I went there. And for the rest of the program, I'm going to continue to go there, along with my guests, life sport coach and nutritionist Celine Evans, and food scientist and the founder of Scratch Labs, Alan Lim. 
Evans and Lim are going to help me and you understand why carbohydrates are actually not the enemy of good, why the keto diet is maybe not such a great idea, especially for endurance athletes, and why you should take everything you hear from keto fanatics with a great big grain of salt. And a cookie. Especially a cookie. This show is therefore not for keto fanatics. I have no expectation of convincing any of them of anything or of changing any minds of any of the preconceived notions that they may have with respect to this particular diet. But for anyone who is considering keto or has wondered what all the fuss is about, then this is for you. Before that, though, I want to take a moment to remind you all once again of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter of this show, like Rebecca Adamson, who, for the price of a cup of coffee per month, is able to avail herself of all kinds of great bonus content that can be found on my Patreon site. And that site is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. If you go there right now, you can find information on the different levels of support, as well as a teaser video of the latest bonus interview with Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson. There are also full interviews with them and Hunter Allen that are only available to my supporters. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thank you in advance for considering. And one more bit of housekeeping before we go full keto. In a coming episode, I'm going to be speaking with Sarah Gross and Sarah True of the If We Were Riding podcast. And Sarah Gross wanted to let everyone know about a special event that her Live Feisty company is putting on in a couple of weeks. So here's a little bit of information on the upcoming Women's Performance Summit. Sarah Gross is one half of the duo behind the podcast, If We Were Riding, one of many podcasts that celebrate women in sport and can be found among the many excellent podcasts geared towards women on the Live Feisty website. Live Feisty was created by former professional triathlete Sarah Gross back in 2017 and has rapidly become one of the go-to places on the web for women looking to find a community and avail themselves of all manner of education tailored to them for life and sport. Well, now for the first time, Live Feisty is putting on a Women's Performance Summit that will be held virtually coming up in a couple of weeks from March 26th to 28th. And here to talk to me about that just a little bit is Sarah Gross. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Jeff. Would you like to be our new PR person? I think that was the best description of the summit. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> what I talked about. I am absolutely... Awful. Well, as uh, as someone who has advocated for women in our sport as well as all sport and continues to do so, I would be thrilled to take advantage of that kind of opportunity. <laughs> Tell us a little bit like about the uh, Women's like Performance Summit. Great. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. We, Tell us a little uh, bit about the Women's the Performance Summit, Summit. Um, as a way to sort of celebrate women's performance and to actually address head on um, the issues around how we can get the best out of our bodies throughout our lives, basically. Um, and a lot of it has to do with an observation that um, that a lot of the sports science studies in particular are done on young men and college age men um, and that we don't actually know if they apply to us as women. And kind of sifting through some of the studies and figuring out what does apply to us is uh, a task best left to experts and academics. And there's a lot of good people doing that kind of work. So we're hoping to bring those people together at the summit and talk about, you know, talk about puberty, pregnancy, midlife, postpartum, menopause is a big one. Um, And then also ask questions around not just physiology, but around mental health, Um, And the social cultural context as well, there's a lot of ways that our performance is affected depending on 
where we come from culturally. So I think um, there's a lot of different angles we can look at it specifically from a female lens. And that's what we're doing. And we're bringing together 20 experts uh, to educate us on how to get the best out of ourselves. Well, it sounds amazing and something that uh, a lot of women I know uh, who are triathletes and other endurance athletes would be wise to look into. So where can they find more information and register? So, yeah, you can go to womensperformancesummit.com and there you'll find all the information, including I think almost all of our speakers are on the website now. uh, And all of the topics are certainly listed there. There's a schedule that's probably 80 or 90% filled out now. So uh, you can, anyone can go there. It's virtual this year. So it's happening March 26th to 28th online. And all of those, we're recording all of those sessions and they'll be available for a full two weeks afterwards as well. Uh, So it's only, I think it's only $149. And if you buy the package, you get all of the sessions, even if you can't attend them live. On top of like, if you do attend the summit on the weekend, there's networking events, there's uh, training sessions, there's there's an amazing expo uh, where a lot of our sponsors have come and put all their information too. So I think it's going to be fun. We're going to have a happy hour <laughs> um, and do, do some other fun things, you know, together. Um, so yes, well, womensperformancesummit.com. That's excellent. Thank you uh, so much, Sarah, for sharing that. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation along with Sarah True that will be coming up on the podcast in the coming weeks. Sarah Gross, uh, the founder of Live Feisty Sports, uh, putting on the Women's Performance uh, Summit that's coming up March 26th to 28th. Check it out. You could find it, uh, as she said, at womensperformancesummit.com or at the Live Feisty website. Celine Evans is a registered dietitian in British Columbia, Canada. She has over 16 years' experience in a range of nutrition therapy specialties, including clinical nutrition, sports nutrition, chronic disease, digestive health, and women's physiology. Among her many qualifications are a Bachelor's of Science with Honors in Dietetics that she obtained at the University of British Columbia, a Master's of Science in Human Nutrition with Distinction that she got at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and the International Olympic Committee's Diploma of Sports Nutrition. Celine grew up swimming competitively and enjoys an active lifestyle. She's participated in several athletic events from half marathons to half Ironman and ultra swims. And she's also a performance nutrition coach with me at Life Sport Coaching and has a private practice that can be found at nutrition360.ca. She's here today, however, to join me to discuss the ever popular and somewhat controversial keto diet. Celine, welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. Now, before we even begin, I want to be very clear. I am well aware that the keto diet has its um, very cultish following. Uh, This discussion is not meant to convince any of the people who are adherents to the keto diet. I I am not here to dissuade anybody who believes that it is a life-changing practice for them. Uh, Instead, we are merely here to discuss what evidence there is in the published literature. And for anybody who may be thinking about going keto, especially as an endurance athlete, we are going to provide you with the evidence to help you make a decision as to whether or not it is the thing to do. So, Celine, 
Let's begin first. You're a dietitian, I think, um, and a nutritionist. I think that it would be helpful for my listeners to get kind of a brief overview of nutrition for endurance performance as we understand it. Great. Yes. So endurance performance is defined as anything that's over 30 minutes in duration and ultra endurance is anything over four to five hours. And our body is oxygen dependent and relying on the creation of ATP to deliver oxygen to our powerhouse of the cell, the mitochondria, to produce uh, energy through carbohydrate and lipids. And over the last 60 years, nutrition for guidelines for endurance athletes has been to focus on strategies to try and match the body's ability to oxidize that fuel. So for a lot of endurance athletes, they're familiar with making sure they're carb loading a little before uh, an event and then intaking an adequate carbohydrates during an event. So anywhere from 30 to up to 90 grams per hour of carbohydrate during an ultra event to using multi-transportable carbohydrates to enhance their performance. And this we know in the labs and in the field uh, supports their motor recruitment for their energy and their pacing, and it helps with their uh, rate of perceived exertion when they're out in the field and being able to use tactical methods in their cycling or their swimming or their running. And there has been a reemergence and an interest in looking at alternative strategies to fuel over the last maybe 40 years or so. And that has been looking at non-ketogenic diets and a ketogenic diet, which is low carbon and high fat, to try and use metabolic flexibility. Because primarily in an endurance athlete, at the high pace, we know that we're using mainly carbohydrates as a fuel when we're at the highest uh, oxidative capacity. So let me just parse some of that out because uh, what you just said there is really concise and and got it really all together in a short little time frame. So let me expand on it a little bit. Uh, what you said was, you know, when we're fueling ourselves, what we're doing is we're taking in the nutrients that we consume and allowing for them to be oxidized. So basically combined with the oxygen that we inhale when we breathe. And in so doing, we are breaking down those nutrients uh, and in the breaking of those bonds, liberating energy, which is then converted in our mitochondria to form ATP, adenosine, adenosine triphosphate, which is the basically the the fuel pellets that yes. generates everything for our cells to do what they need to do. So nutrients that we consume combined with oxygen that we breathe within the cells are then the energy from those nutrients are combined and released and then reformed into adenosine triphosphate, which is then used to make everything happen. The other key part of what you said was that our cells can make use of different fuels, but we have preferential fuels when we're doing different kinds of exercise. Um, and carbohydrates are the preferred fuel for our cells because why? Well, they are the preferred fuels for our cells. One, it's used in, it's called oxidative phosphorylation and it's used in the, it's less, it's using less oxygen when it is being uh, combusted. So our bodies tend to prefer that. Our brain generally tends to prefer that as a source of fuel as well. In terms of where we have that stored, we have our liver glycogen stores, and then we have muscle glycogen stores that uh, store the the stored form of, of glucose, which is the glycogen. Right. And then we so, use... Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. 
No, I was just going to say, so, so yeah, so we are more efficient using carbohydrates because we need less oxygen to, to burn right. carbohydrates. And therefore that's a determination of efficiency is the amount of oxygen required to break down carbohydrate. We need less oxygen to metabolize carbohydrate. And we also get a substantial amount of ATP or adenosine triphosphate from each molecule of carbohydrate. Right. However, we don't store a lot of it. As you just that's mentioned, right. we only store it in forms of glycogen, which is found in the liver and in the muscle, but only in small amounts. We tend to burn through that 45 to 60 minutes and then we're, we're exhausted. And that's why it's so important for athletes to fuel as they are moving through an endurance event, unless they're able to make use of alternative fuels, such as the non-carbohydrate fuels, such as right. free fatty acids, which you alluded to. So yes. that's where we kind of get into this idea of the non or low carbohydrate alternative fueling strategies. And that's kind of, that's one kind of branch of where this whole keto diet came from. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the keto diet, where it came from, and um, maybe succinctly kind of define what its intention was. So the intention of a, a ketogenic diet in, in athletes was to try and help maximize your fat oxidation rate so that you could use that as an alternate fuel source and get the body used to using that mode of metabolism and increasing the body's production of ketones, which would then be used for your muscles and your central nervous system to try and use that as an alternate fuel to try and save some of the carbohydrates for later on in the endurance event. Um, so right. the body was better able to use both sources and tap right. into both for imp imp theoretically improved performance. Right. And at the same time as this was being developed, or actually probably earlier, because the roots of the ketogenic diet actually come from, um, oh gosh, what's his name? And the Inuit tribes? Was it Finney and the Inuit tribes in the early No, 80s? well, yeah, but I mean, it was adapted from him to yes. be that diet, the high-fat diet. Um, yes, oh my gosh. Atkins. Atkins, Mr. thank Atkins. you, the Atkins. Yes. yes. So <laughs> Atkins uh, saw how Inuit were consuming very high quantities of fat but had very low amounts of heart disease and yes. other kinds of uh, um, ailments that seemed to be very prevalent within uh, Western societies. And... His thought process was that the absence of carbohydrates and the absence of high spikes of insulin must have been uh, contributing to the fact that the Inuit could eat large amounts of um, fat and protein and not sustain the kinds of illnesses that uh, we in the southern climes tended yes. to uh, suffer from. And so he developed this very high fat, high protein diet, cutting out carbohydrates. The idea being that if you didn't spike your insulin, then you wouldn't have this continuous up down of glucose and, and, and have these problems with metabolic health. And, and that led to this notion that if you went by this diet, you would lose weight because you would be continually in a state of ketosis because you didn't have a lot of carbohydrates circulating around. And in fact, there has been quite a bit of research that shows that adhering to those kinds of diet does lead to a faster weight loss than most other kinds of diets. But 
The downside is, is you end up with very high numbers of LDL, which is the bad form of cholesterol and lipids. And um, over time, uh, Atkins diet has been shown uh, to be associated with uh, higher levels of heart disease in certain types of people. So uh, Atkins diet has been not so much uh, a popular diet amongst healthcare uh, providers because uh, we've seen some of the downsides to it. But it did spawn this idea of a ketogenic diet for athletes who could, as Celine was saying before, train their bodies to become more efficient utilizing alternative fuels, allowing them to utilize carbohydrates later in in an event. Mm -hmm. The one thing I've always wondered about Uh, with the theory of the ketogenic diet is, you know, in this day and age, athletes either carry a lot of fuel with them or have access to a lot of fuel on the course. And so it was never really clear to me what the need was to, to train your body to make use of a less efficient fuel when you had an abundance of the fuel that you're actually more efficient using. Uh, Do you have a sense? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I I always found myself somewhat mystified by the theory and, and I, anyways, okay. So let's, let's, we'll come back to that later, but let's, uh, let's turn to some of the evidence because there is quite a bit of evidence out there. I know we both did uh, our independent research and found quite a bit of, um, research uh, in various different journals. What what did you come up with in terms of the ability of athletes using ketogenic diets to perform? Well, for a lot of athletes and some of the studies, they even wrote in the results that some athletes couldn't maintain the challenges of, of staying on the ketogenic diet and they just discontinued and they were having to drop out of studies. So that in itself is something. Um, but the, the adaptation piece, there was a couple of researches uh, or papers where they there was a lot of flaws, right? So you've got a couple of journals where they're looking at cyclists, some are looking at runners, some are looking at um, different distances of adaptation. So it was really hard to, to compare everything in terms of the implementation of how it was achieved. Some of the, some of the studies, showed no ketosis was achieved. Some of them had no control group. Uh, Some of the better studies had a really tight um, scientific protocol. So they used trained athletes, their adaptation and duration of adaptation was anywhere from 20 days. Some studies went up to 12 weeks, but they were trying to deplete the glycogen stores in their actual training adaptation to, to check and see if the body was actually able to then switch to the other fuel, whereas some other studies only did a, a 5K time trial on a treadmill, and we know what fuel that will use. Yeah, so I, I, it's interesting. You mentioned a couple of things there that I found also in the research on the papers that I looked at. Uh, you know, I, I, the gold standard for a scientific study is, of course, the randomized control trial, where yes. you randomize individuals to one treatment arm or the other. So for a Correct. ketone study, you would say, okay, you know, athlete A, you're doing the ketone diet, and athlete B, you're doing a carbohydrate diet. That's not what these studies do. These studies invariably let the athletes choose. Yes, they and parallel, cho- choosing what they believed. Yes. Yeah, so that right away is going to lead to some kind of skewing of the data, you would think, Yes. except for the fact that every single paper that I looked at showed the same thing, that athletes who were in the ketone uh, or the, in the ketogenic diets 
had a very high failure rate, like you said, they weren't able to stick with it. But then also within the ketogenic group, they always showed poorer performance. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Right, which is... Eight studies that uh, Louise Burke cited in one of her most recent papers, there was eight studies she cited, and they had different different aspects, but it was all specifically looking at adaptation on exercise endurance and pr- exercise capacity and uh, performance endurance. So that was specifically what these eight studies were looking at. Seven of, them, seven of these studies, regardless of what they did with their protocols, showed no improvement in performance on the ketogenic diet. And one of them said it was a maybe, but I had a little look at the the actual design of the study and everything else, and it was questionable in terms of, I think it was yeah. ad-lib diet. They weren't tightly controlling what they were eating. They were just recording it. So you have no way of knowing um, adherence. What people were doing. Yes. Yeah, and, and then one of the things that I found remarkable, because a lot of uh, – ketogenic athletes, what they will say is they train ketogenic so that they could train their body to use free fatty acids and ketones. And then when they race, they go back to eating carbohydrates with the idea being that, oh, I'm I'm racing now, so I'm going to use carbohydrates because that's what my body wants. And then as I'm, you know, getting to the point in the race where I've depleted my glycogen, my body will shift effortlessly back to ketones because I've trained my body. But what I was astonished in some of the papers that I saw is after going through ketogenic adaptation, when they reintroduced carbohydrates, athletes could not use no. carbohydrates as well. They were not and, as and efficient at oxidizing it anymore. That's exactly yeah. it. And showed significant decrements in their performance yes. compared to before the study. So Correct. not only were they performing not as well when they were ketogenic, but they were performing not as well with carbohydrates. And that to me was a huge eye opener. I was not aware of that data until I started seeing it in these studies. And if I was considering ketogenic, which I hadn't previously, but I mean, if I was, that would be a deal breaker for me right there. Because, you know, that's the way it's sold. When you hear or when I see people talk about ketogenic diets on social media, it's basically for that reason. The idea being that I'm going to train my body to be keto, you know, to use alternative fuels. But then when I race, I'm going to use carbohydrates and my body's going to be, you know, clicking on all cylinders on both carbohydrates and alternative fuels. Well, it turns out that's not the case. No, it that's turns correct. out, yeah, they're not using either of the fuels in an efficient manner and performing substantially less than athletes. And it's not that hard to understand why. I mean, the athletes who train with ketogenic cannot train at the same level of intensity. They just can't because they're, they, they don't have the right fuel. And then when they go to race, they're not trained as well as the athletes who've been fueling properly with and you know, carbohydrates. And, it, yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it comes back to that question of why would anybody want to do this when fuel is abundant, you know, on race courses? I mean, I could, maybe make an argument for the ultra distance performers who have more trouble having enough fuel and are are performing at a much lower uh, percentage of their intensity right yeah. and 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 there have been studies that i came across that did show when you're operating in the 50 to 60% intensity um Your VO2. range yeah yeah, that that's where ketogenics seem to perform as well as carbohydrate if you had adapted. Correct. Yes. Yes, definitely. And, 
And so I wonder if maybe for the ultra distance, you know, where fuel is maybe not as abundant, maybe in that group of people, this makes some degree of sense. But even then, I'm not sure it's worth it, given how hard it is to train in that state, how hard it is to stick to the diet, because we've yeah. seen, I mean, in a couple of these papers where the athletes self-selected, I was seeing rates of more than 50% failure to, to stick to the diet. Oh, and, and I mean, it's really tough. It's yeah, really tough. Yeah. Our bodies crave carbohydrate, right? Well, yes. And then the athlete feels uh, fatigued, right? They're tired. Yeah. They're irritable. They can be more prone to constipation, brain fog, headaches. Um, and now you've got reduced variability in food as well. So now you're changing the gut microbiota and gut health. And that also directly affects the immune system. So talk a little bit about that because, you know, that's that's a hot topic these days. We hear a lot about the gut microbiome and how important that is to maintaining overall health. Yes. So uh, how, how is it possible for a ketogenic diet to negatively impact that? Well, with the ketogenic diet, you have a limited uh, supply of a variety of foods, right? You, you got to you have to get a lot of your foods from um, your carbohydrates come from your low carbohydrate vegetables and fruit, your dairy, your nuts and seeds and things like that. And then everything else is, is, is higher in fat. So what you've done is you've reduced a lot of the fiber. And when you've reduced the variability within the diet, you have less of those prebiotic rich foods that are in the diet naturally when you're eating a, 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 a regular varied diet with lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains, which then provide that wide array of pre and probiotics in the in the gut so that those things have things to feed on to create a healthy microbiota and so then they're at risk higher risk of nutrient deficiencies but also a change within that which could affect their digestion of even carbohydrates within a race when you have an altered gut I didn't come across any articles that looked at that specifically. So that's just theory at this point, right? That is just theory looking at non-athletes and looking at gut microbiota. That's it. Pre-probiotics. Nothing to do with athletes. So I'm curious, Celine, I mean, you must have people that come to you and are either on keto diet or come to you and say, look, I want to do this or... Um, I mean, in some version and what do you counsel them or, uh, you know, how do you approach that? Well, it, it depends specifically on the client. Most of my clients are athletes. Most of them are endurance athletes. So I generally steer them away from it based on the research because of the evidence that we've just discussed. It's not exactly going to help them out. Um, but in saying that I do have one, athlete training for an ultra endurance and she is completely um, high carb but she does use exogenous ketones not at my suggestion she has done it on her own a free will and she finds that it helps with her central nervous system interesting because i did i did read some papers that's not the subject of this conversation so i didn't spend too much time on the research on that but it's interesting because a lot you know that was a big topic of discussion what two years ago a lot of the pro cycling Mm -hmm. teams a lot of high-end runners were you were using exogenous ketone supplementation and they've gone away from it because uh, it did not bear out the promise that it initially showed. And I I found a couple of papers that really seem to kind of 
show that that is not helpful. Um, but I mean, that's not to say that uh, just because a study doesn't show overall effects, that's not to say that an individual won't have positive effects. So, Correct. Um, yeah. yeah, but that is interesting. Um, she finds it helps her, which is great. Uh, but I did think it was interesting that two years ago, that was all the rage. And now nobody's really using that at a high level anymore. No, uh, evidence doesn't really support it so much as an erg ergogenic aid. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the death or not the death now, but really sort of a, a signal for me about these kinds of fad diets and these kinds of things that get so much discussion on social media is, you know, what are the pros doing? Because if something is, you know, when people talk about how great something is and how it's so life changing and, and how they're performing, because I mean, some of the stuff you see on social media is, it's 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 really hard to believe. I mean, I see people talking about how they they've they've had PRs and 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 their Ironman times have come down by you know massive percentages since they went keto. And I'm like, if this was true, you would expect to see pros talking about this and doing this. And I I spoke to um, the podcast intern is Maddie Pesh. She's a pro triathlete, and she was quite clear. She doesn't know a single pro triathlete who uh, uses this. And I've asked several other contacts and. None of them. They laughed at me. They're like, why would we do this? This this makes no sense. You can't train at the right intensity. You can't, I mean, we have, a, a, it goes back to what I said before, abundant levels of fuel available to us on course. We are going to train with that fuel so that we can be best, you know, using that fuel. I mean, that's the fuel our body wants. That's what we're going to make use that's of. That's correct. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. I know a lot of athletes, Jeff, come to me and they say they have trouble um, sustaining and taking in what's actually recommended for ultra races or Ironman races. And what it ends up coming back to is they haven't trained their gut adequately yeah. in terms yeah. of getting their body used to oxidizing it or hydrating well enough. And it's a combination of all these little bits and pieces coming together to actually get the body used to oxidizing those rates. Because if you do that, just like your training and you practice it with the nutrition, then the body can oxidize it. And it, it happens every time with my athletes. We, we just tweak a few little bits and pieces and they're like, wow, my legs aren't puffy anymore. Wow. I don't have cramps anymore. And I could run and I didn't have to use the emergency bathroom. I'm able to take in, you know, up to 40 grams per hour now, whereas before they had trouble with 20, if that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have the same conversations. I say all the time, train the way you're going to race, and then you'll be able to race the way you trained. And uh, that includes that includes your gut. You got to train your gut the same way that you train your legs, your lungs, and everything else. So, I mean, summing it all up, then you know, lots of research to show that uh, keto diets they can cause rapid weight loss, no question, but they're often not sustainable. The, the diet itself is not sustainable and the weight loss tends to be short-lived, comes back and not a viable long-term weight loss strategy. That's number one. Yes. Number two, um, ketogenic diet for athletes. Um, again, very difficult to adhere to, not ideal for performance, no benefits whatsoever in terms of endurance performance, fuel utilization, and detrimental to athletes who think that they're getting a bonus when they go back to carbohydrates on race day. So really, no compelling evidence whatsoever, no compelling reason to use this diet um, for any reason for an endurance athlete. I agree wholeheartedly. 
All right. Well, <laughs> I think we've kind of tied it up in a bow here. I'm sure we will have convinced nobody who is a, an adherent to a keto diet. But if you're out there and uh, you have a strong disagreement with us and some scientific evidence that you think we've missed and, and you think that uh, we should hear an alternative viewpoint, then I'd like to know. Send me an email, tri underscore doc at iCloud.com, and let's talk. Celine, Thank you so much for joining me. If you want to know more about Celine, uh, I'll have her website in the uh, show notes. And uh, you can also find out more about her and me at uh, lifesportcoaching.com. Thank you so much uh, again for joining me on the TriDoc podcast to have this discussion today, Celine. Thank you for having me, Jeff. For the second half of the show in which we're going to discuss the merits or lack thereof for the keto diet, I'm joined by Alan Lim. Alan is a physiologist who received his doctorate from the Applied Exercise Science Laboratory at the University of Colorado at Boulder. After graduating, he worked on the pro cycling tour as a sports scientist and coach for the FONAC, TIAA CREF, Garmin, and Radio Shack professional cycling teams. After leaving the Pro Tour in 2012, he co-founded Scratch Labs, a sports nutrition company based in Boulder, Colorado. He's also helped co-author three cookbooks with Chef Bijou Thomas, The Feed Zone Cookbook, Feed Zone Portables, and The Feed Zone Table. In his spare time, Alan continues to coach and consult professional athletes like the Lux Junior Cycling Team, TJ Van Garderen, Ellen Noble, and Gwen Jorgensen. But he joined me for a conversation on carbohydrates, fueling, and whether or not the keto diet makes any sense for endurance athletes. Here now is my conversation with Dr. Alan Lim. I got to see you speak at the Endurance Coaching Summit, and of course, I'm very familiar with you from your cookbooks and from your uh, products from scratch, which I've used for a very long time, and I'm particularly interested in beginning right there. Uh, what What's the story of scratch? Uh, how did that come to be? What was uh, the genesis of that? Well, the genesis of Scratch Labs is really the idea of starting from scratch, right? I mean, I think this in some ways goes all the way back to my parents first immigrating to America, to, to California, um, starting a little Chinese restaurant in Redondo Beach for a time and, you know, just trying to make their way. And I've always been imbued with this idea that part of the American dream is that you can always reinvent yourself. You can literally always start from scratch no matter where you find yourself. I found myself at a point in my career where, you know, I was kind of um, up the creek without a paddle, if you will. Um, I was on the Radio Shack cycling team. Uh, that was Lance's team. You know, Lance had come under federal investigation and I found myself coming home from the 2010 Tour de France and waiting for me back here at home in Boulder, Colorado, were a cadre of federal investigators. And so by association, you know, uh, my career kind of detonated. And it took a little bit of time to um, for all of that to resolve. And luckily, it all resolved, you know, well and, uh, you know, in my favor. And I could have returned back to, I think, the pro tour. But during that time, as as I was mired in in, in all of this, I realized that i needed to do something, you know, where I could take care of myself. And I had a really good friend who I had previously coached named Ian McGregor, who was part of the TIA Cref um, squad. And he had uh, been injured. And so we were both kind of commiserating with one another. I had another college 
uh, roommate who was also at a point in life where he was looking for a change. And we found in one another this opportunity to, you know, put things into our own hands. And at the time, we were, you know, making the sports strength. I was making the sports strength for for friends and for riders I had previously coached. I had no sense that that this would ever become a business. But Ian, in all of his wisdom, was like, "Look, Al, there are a lot of things that we probably do with our lives, but this one has the highest margin." And it was kind of a joke <laughs> at first. It was just kind of like, you know, fun and games. And we didn't initially take ourselves too seriously about it. Um, we knew that there was some opportunity. And so we started out by calling it secret drink mix because everyone using this drink mix were friends of ours who were secretly using it instead of their, you know, sponsors drink mix. We were making it in a paint shaker at McCucken hardware here in Boulder. And I think one thing led to another and we found ourselves, um, not only becoming really engaged and really interested in what we could do to take care of ourselves, but we found ourselves really helping a lot of people. And we realized that this idea of secret drink mix wasn't really all that sincere and, you know, came up with the idea of Scratch Labs in part because everything I had ever learned on the Pro Tour about nutrition was that food made from scratch with care, love, was always better, worked better, right? Um, and here we were trying to, you know, start our lives over again. Um, so Scratch Labs was born and, and, and Scratch, that part of the name was really a, a node to the heart and Labs was a node to the evidence-based problem solving that had got us to our products, right? So there was a, a contradiction of head and heart there that, you know, I think it really resonates with us even today. So I really love um, so much of, well, first of all, I love the products. I mean, I've been a very, one of the many, many satisfied users. And one of the things, uh, the credo really, uh, that I came to understand behind your products that I continue to believe in and use with my own athletes is this idea that real food is the best thing. You just mentioned it yourself, you know, food made from scratch, food that's real is the best energy source. And I, I thought it was really interesting when I first came across scratch, you know, I, I kept looking at the, the, the product information going, well, where are the calories? You know, because, you know, that's, that's at that point, everybody was making drinks that was just like chock full of calories. And it just seemed like that was how you were supposed to get your calories. And this idea that, uh, no, yeah. you, you should be getting your calories, uh, in, in, in a different kind of form. And the, the drink should be a way to get your electrolytes and your, your liquids, um, was novel. And, and, and it's amazing how the the industry has changed, and uh, I think in large part uh, to your credit uh, because of you guys. So congratulations oh, thank you for very that. Much. Well, you know, I do think that. Thanks. You know, it, it is all about context. A lot of it is also about weather and temperature, and you you know, I started seeing scenarios where I was asking myself, well, what is bottlenecking the athlete right now? Is it hydration or is it fuel? And too often they are athletes were trying to put the two together where depending upon the weather, depending upon the environment, the needs could be very, very different, right? In very cold weathers, you can see a case where your um, hydration can also be your fuel just because that energy expenditure is still pretty high, but your you know, uh, hydration needs might be low. And so if you wanted to get your calories in liquid form, you would have to concentrate things. In the summertime, you know, if we took the average calories that the athletes needed for a day in, say, the Tour de France, 
versus how much fluid they needed to stay properly hydrated or to satiate, quench their thirst. Uh, you know, we saw like that they were consuming about a 4% carbohydrate solution or four grams of carbohydrate for every hundred mils of fluid that they wanted to drink. And so, uh, you know, we started realizing, holy cow, you know, in some cases, you know, liquid hydration can work really well if it's a lower concentration because you're just, your volume demands are, 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 you know, are so high. And in the winter months, you know, when your volume demands aren't high, but your calories are still the same. I think the problem that we were seeing is that a lot of liquid carbohydrate sources were causing a lot of GI distress. And, you know, later came to discover as I, I brought a lot of these products in the laboratory that not all of these high calorie carbohydrate solutions were equal, meaning they weren't necessarily all very complex, even though they were being sold as, as very complex. And so there wasn't anyone kind of regulating, you know, the quality of that carbohydrate. And so you could really find yourself in a, in a bad situation. The solution, easy solution was to, to, to rely on, on real food, right. For the fueling aspect and to right. keep the hydration, um, lower in calories, but the other side of it was also really paying attention to how much salt athletes lost. And I think when I first came into the sport, there was very little discussion about variability in sweat sodium. There was very little discussion about how much salt we actually lost in our sweat and what that meant in terms of hydration or thirst trigger, et cetera. And I started to find on the pro tour that there was a lot of individual variability that not all the athletes were the same. And rather than chastise the people who were the outliers, it was more about like, well, okay, can we make the people who are on the extremes better, right? Uh, what, what, what can we do to help them? Okay, so let's uh, take on that aspect of fueling uh, that you mentioned just before about carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And as a food scientist, I want to focus on that specifically and this notion uh, about carbohydrates. Why are carbohydrates so important for the endurance athlete? Well, carbohydrates are important for the endurance athlete primarily because it's the bottleneck. It's the fuel source that happens to be uh, rate limited within our body. We have ample fat stores. And as long as we have carbohydrate, we don't tap into protein. Carbohydrate is vital for high intensity uh, work. And even as an endurance athlete, there are moments where you're going to be surging, or you're going to have to change your pace or uh, go a little more intense. And that taps into that carbohydrate uh, load. Um, as well, even at, say, sub threshold pace, you're still going to be using some carbohydrate. You're not always using hundred percent, you know, fat, unless you're going at a very, very low intensity. And finally, because you do need, um, metabolically speaking, a little bit of wick to burn the wax, right. That, um, you know, when you look at the biochemical pathway responsible for burning fat, you know, all of that intersects into a system called the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle. And a lot of the substrates in the citric acid cycle are maintained or fed by glycolysis, fed by the breakdown of carbohydrate. And so uh, in many ways, if you don't have enough carbohydrate, you start to bonk, that system can be rate limited. But also blood sugar regulation is everything during exercise. And if we start to become hypoglycemic, right, because we're running out of, say, liver glycogen, uh, because we don't have a way of maintaining our blood sugar, then 
you know, our nervous system starts to fail and we start to uh, get a little foggy eyed, right? So, right. you know, carbohydrate is essential for our brain, for our nervous f- function. It's the primary source of fuel. Um, you know, it's required to maintain that fat utilization. It's always being used and it's bottlenecked, right? So key substrate for, for endurance activity. And as I, you know, as you kind of alluded to briefly, they're not stored. So we have very limited stores in terms of glycogen in the liver and in the muscle. And so we have to be continually replenishing it as we're going for longer and longer uh, on the bike or run or whatever it is that we're doing. That's right. And that storage is variable depending upon your diet, right? So you can manipulate that storage if you're uh, consuming a high carbohydrate diet, you know, uh, you know, say 10 days, two weeks before a big event. And we're talking up to 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight per day. We're talking, you know, 60% or more of your daily uh, total calorie intake. You can double, maybe even triple the amount of glycogen that you have on board, right? Uh, Compared to say a low carbohydrate diet. So it is very plastic and people don't often realize that they are glycogen depleted coming into an event because they just have been ignoring that as a fuel source. It takes time for that to build up. Um, other things like delayed onset muscle soreness might also affect the glycogen that you're storing. You know, so if you're in a hard training phase and you've been doing a lot of eccentric motion, that can limit things as well. Uh, that all being said, you know, for an average 70 kilogram athlete, you know, maybe you're storing at tops 2,500 calories worth of glycogen usable glycogen. The other thing that people don't realize is that if you're, say, doing lower leg exercise, you're using the glycogen specific to that contracting muscle. You're not able to tap into or use the glycogen stored in your deltoids, right? Or in other muscles. Yeah. It's locally sourced, locally used. That's right. Um, That's right. So does it matter then what carbohydrate an athlete consumes, uh, depending on when they are in an event? Uh, yeah, it does. It depends on, you know, uh, ultimately how you want to regulate externally your blood sugar, right? Mm-hmm. And what your what the capacity of your small intestine is to absorb that carbohydrate. Uh, so if you're using, say, uh, simple sugars, you always want to keep that at a lower concentration, uh, just so that you don't inhibit osmosis, right? If you have too many, if you have more molecules in a solution than, say, blood, and the, the way that we measure molecular concentration is a unit of measure called osmolality. That's the number of, say, molecules per kilogram of water. Um, blood is like 280, 290. So you do want to keep that lower than, than blood to maintain passive water movement across the intestine. Um, so, you know, if you want kind of quick, uh, you know, blood glucose increase, Simple sugars at a lower concentration, that works pretty well. If you want steady, you know, entrance and you still don't want to inhibit, you know, water absorption, then you need a very complex carbohydrate that that doesn't detonate in the gut. You know, um, this idea of molecular concentration or osmolality is dynamic. It changes as glucose or substrates, electrolytes are absorbed into the the body across the small intestine so that can lower osmolality dynamically in the gut but it can also increase as digest as carbohydrates more complex carbohydrates are digested and sometimes if these uh 
carbohydrates break apart too fast, you might have a Trojan horse on your hands, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you look at the type of polysaccharides out on the available on the market, they're quite variable. Anything above glucose, three glucose units is considered complex, right? But, you know, something that is, say, 15 glucose units will probably break apart much faster than, say, something that is, you know, 50 or more glucose units. The structure can also affect how fast these carbohydrate molecules break down. Um, so by and large, you know, more complex, more branched, more structured, more glucose units, bigger glucose molecules will have a lower glycemic index, break down the slowest. That, of course, will be real food from a starch, right? From rice or, you know, uh, something something that is food that needs to actually digest physically in the stomach. Um, you know, after that, you're talking like these highly branched cyclic dextrins. Um, and then below that are these kind of long chain, single chain polysaccharides. Um, so yeah, just depends on your, 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 your needs. Um, and then as far as like, you know, eating at home, et cetera, again, you know, you probably want something more complex. That's steady. That, that doesn't break down as fast before a workout, a few hours before a workout, you might want something that is very, very simple, right. As you start a workout. Yeah. I, I want to rephrase a lot of what you said because it's it's really important, and I think some of my listeners might have missed it in uh, in, in some of the complexity. But you, you need to keep your you need to keep this balance between getting in the sugar that you need and making sure that that sugar doesn't cause problems in your gut, because we know that GI distress is a function of too many simple sugars in the stomach because it causes this osmotic load, which is basically uh, a, a, an attraction of fluid, and it pulls fluid into your gut and causes right. this feeling of fullness and then that can lead to nausea and even vomiting which is something you really want to avoid and simple sugars while they're rapidly absorbed and can raise your blood glucose also have this tendency to cause a high osmotic load and can cause gi distress so it's important if you're going to take simple sugars you do so in a low concentration um the next thing alan talked about was this notion of making your sugars into chains uh those are called complex uh, polysaccharides the longer the chain the slower the breakdown the more Uh, continuous the absorption of those simple sugars off of that chain, but it does take time for them to be digested and absorbed. And so you can't expect to take in a polysaccharide at the beginning of a race and get the instantaneous bolus of that sugar in your blood. It takes time depending on how complex that sugar was. So when he refers to the very complex polysaccharides in the forms of starches from rice, that's something that may digest over the course of, say, an hour before you start to get uh, a real spike in your uh, blood sugar so that you can uh, start to see that sugar be used in uh, cellular processes. And so that's why there's a nuance and a real science to making sure that you're getting a mix of both simple and complex sugars so that you have the initial spike when you take something in, maybe in the form of some gels or maybe some sugar in a, in a drink. And then on top of that, you have these complex polysaccharides that get broken down more uh, slowly, don't cause the stomach issues, and will be taken up more slowly to give you a continuous kind of low level of glucose absorption so that you're fueling yourself for the duration of this uh, time that you're going to be doing exercise. Is that about uh, get it right there, Alan? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll add to that, that ultimately this takes planning and it takes a little bit of thought and that you can't then practice. Yeah. That, that, 
that with the more complex carbohydrates, you are thinking ahead, right? You're thinking about the next hour and you've got to kind of break things down into, you know, what do I need over the course of my whole entire event and how do I begin onboarding that earlier so that I don't find myself with an empty tank. Um, sometimes when you get that, that, when that tank comes too close to empty, it's a little hard to refuel in real time without having to slow down and actually just stop. Right. Right. And so it right. really also, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of trying to balance performance as well. Right. And how yeah. fast can you go for that whole entire duration? Um, so, you know, you think of yourself as this jet that is burning at a high rate and you've got to kind of plan to refuel in real time. Right. So that your plane doesn't fall out of the sky. Yeah. And, and that brings me to, that brings me to this whole idea of, you know, going keto. So we just had a conversation, me and Celine Evans, just before this conversation, she's a nutritionist. We talked about the data that's out there on using keto diets. Uh, I have absolutely no interest in trying to convince anybody who uses keto as a strategy, because I already know that that's a, uh, fruitless endeavor. But uh, I am uh, interested in your own thoughts and opinions uh, on the keto diet as an actual strategy. And again, people who go keto will swear by the fact that it enhances performance, despite the fact that all of the data would suggest otherwise. And I'm just curious uh, what your thoughts are as a food scientist. Yeah, I think I think you feel better when you're on a keto diet and you especially feel better when you're in a lot of video conference meetings all day and 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 hacking away at email, right? Because you don't have to worry about eating so much and you're just kind of in this, you know, your blood sugar is really really steady if you can can break through. So, I think it feels good, but I don't think that you go faster. Um and I do think that you know, there is a, a basis of, 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 of food that is not just about performance, but is also about culture and about, um, you know, our social needs and that most of the people who end up doing this diet, it tends to be extreme and it tends to be fairly isolating. And I think that, you know, what I see in a lot of athletes, when they are trying to adopt an extreme diet is that the isolation that that causes causes more mental health issues than are worth it. So there is a psychological side and a well-being side to a lot of these diets that people don't often consider. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily give it pluses on a performance side. I might give it some pluses on, on how you feel. I definitely give it a lot of negatives on the social side of things and uh, it being really, really difficult to manage in a team environment, especially. Going back to what you said before, too, I think that, you know, the interesting thing about fat adaptation and keto is that it seems much more appropriate for the longer events like ultra running, where you're you're doing it for like 24 hours or longer and at a much lower pace where you don't need the That's surges, right. you don't need the continuous carbohydrate level of uh, metabolism, but that you can actually make use of the, you know, the, the slower, less efficient metabolism of fats. Uh, the other the thing about it is <clears throat> that's me, right. as you said as you said you know those are events where carrying the amount of food that you would need to actually keep your carbohydrate levels high is really difficult and being able to you know utilize your fat stores yeah. is 
is is preferred. Whereas in a triathlon, even an Ironman, that's you've right. got carbohydrate available to yourself all the time, and uh, therefore you're not really gaining anything. In that's fact, right. you're potentially sacrificing performance. Yeah, exactly. So context matters here, right? And if you are trying to train for these ultra endurance events that take longer than ten hours, that can go as long as a few days. You know, in many ways, if you're training properly for it, you're going to naturally fat adapt anyways, right? And your ability to use fat at those intensities is going to be better. You will uh, be um, not as burdened by how much you have to carry in terms of of exogenous carbohydrate and gear, etc. Um, you know, and 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 there is some real advantage. I mean, our bodies are really, really suited for adaptation for you know a number of different environmental and physical challenges, and this idea of you know coming into ketosis and fat adaptation is really a survival mechanism for starvation, right? And in a lot of ways, these ultra endurance events are uh, in some ways starvation events as well. Right. Exactly. Well, Alan, I, I can't yeah. thank you enough for your time today. This was a really great conversation on carbohydrates and fueling and different kinds of eating strategies and how they can and maybe can't help you in the long run and shorter events. So uh, Alan Lim, founder of Scratch Labs and uh, coach to so many high level uh, performance athletes. Thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my incredible intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes, at the brand new website, www.tridocpodcast.com. The URL again, the much easier to remember, tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.